Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. Welcome to episode 178 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Three cases today, they're all from the Illinois Appellate First District, which seemed to be busy not this past Thanksgiving week, but the week before. Uh, the first case today is Illinois Road and Transportation Builders Association versus County of Cook. The second and if you recognize that name, it's because we've yeah. talked about it before, and we're going yeah. to talk and about it again, because this is not the last say, time. That, that's a yo-yo case. It keeps going yes. up and down like a yo-yo. Yep. Yep. The uh, second case is for, also from the Illinois Appellate First, Mitchell versus Michael Sport Lounge. And the final case is Taylor versus Chicago. Turning to our first case, an hour and a half oral argument in the Illinois Appellate Court is almost unheard of. But that is what happened last week in Illinois Road and Transportation Builders Association versus County of Cook. This is the second go-around after the plaintiffs won in the Illinois Supreme Court with a finding that an amendment to the Illinois Constitution that required tax revenues collected from transportation and earmarked for that purpose actually meant what it said, God forbid, in Illinois. On remand, the circuit court held... Whether it does or not is the question. (laughs) All right. All right. On remand, the, the circuit court held that the county line with the requirement, but the plaintiffs appealed, asserting that funds spent for tangential law enforcement activities not related to transportation. It is possible that it could be moved up in the queue uh, as the court granted a motion to expedite the appeal with the upcoming start of the fiscal year. Pat, tell us about this case. So getting to the last point that Dan made first, uh, first, thank you, Dan, is that this case, the circuit court opinion came down August 14th. So I reached out to a friend of the show, John Fitzgerald, over at Tabit DeVito, and I asked, John, how do you get a case of this magnitude briefed and argued by mid-November when the case was only decided in the appellate court or the circuit court on August 14th? And he explained that they had filed a, a motion to expedite, which he characterized as partially having been granted. So that's how we know. Uh, that's how it happened so quickly. Um, and the, the justices were, were extremely well prepared, which is why this took so long. Justice Ellis had a whole range of questions, and it was Justice Pachinsky or McBride? Uh, I think it's McBride. Uh, Justice I, think, Howard, I think it was McBride, but yeah. I have a hard time distinguishing at times. Yes, I think it was McBride. And then Justice House was the presiding justice, and I don't think he asked a question. And that's probably because Justices Ellis and McBride asked all questions. They asked a lot. Um, and apologies to Justice Paczynski if it was her. I, I, I honestly, I, I'm. It's been a couple. It's been over a week since I listened to this argument, and I'm honestly not sure. Uh, but they were really trying to dig down into what was going on here. Um, and the issue is this: so uh, appellants. So the court the to situate us. The Supreme Court held that, yes, you have to earmark certain, the the monies that are taken in from transportation taxes, you have to earmark those for transportation purposes. And among the transportation purposes are purposes related to the enforcement of traffic laws. 
Well, let's just say that the county takes a rather expansive version of what of enforcement of traffic laws means. You and I might think it would be speeders, people running red lights, traffic accidents, perhaps even investigating them, perhaps this kind of a thing, maybe. Oh, no. It includes the jail, the prosecutors, the judges, the, pr- the probation programs, the diversion programs, the laundry at the jail, the, I mean, all kinds of things. And the argument starts with counsel for the plaintiffs, the appellants here, Illinois Road and Transportation, going, how in the world could the, the people who passed this amendment, which was not passed very long ago, how could they possibly have thought that jail laundry was included in, tra- in a transportation expense? Uh, that's just absurd. So they, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's crazy. They're, they're trying to run the city or the county rather, which is in a very tight budget situation with these transportation funds and essentially not earmarking a single thing to fixing a pothole, building a road or repairing a bridge. Um, all of which the county has those things as county roads. It has bridges, roads, other transportation, airports. Uh, it can go towards all manner of transportation. Um, it's very broad, but apparently, and so the bottom line is, is that the, the city or the county says that they've collected what, 200 million in revenue. And they found an amount of money, like $400 million plus in monies that are being earmarked to transportation related activities with, and it gives them like a $274 million cushion over the amounts that were collected in revenue related to from transportation excises. And so they're like, well, even if we're wrong on some of these, they still don't, you still can't overcome the $274 million cushion. And what the county did is it got a an auditor to come in, essentially, talk to a bunch of people, figure out what they're doing, and, and then allocate a percentage of what the work that was being done to the particular item. And the uh, issue comes down to is, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, is what does the word program mean? And this is how how, uh, the money is to be allocated, is through a program, according to the plaintiffs. Now, that term isn't really, it's used in the Constitution, it's undefined. It is defined in the in the Cook County um, manual for fiscal whatever. It's defined, and it, and that definition, not a surprise, is helpful to the to the to the appellants, which is why they're citing to it. Um, but it's not the def- There is no statewide definition. There really isn't any case law defining it. The uh, the justices struggled with what does it mean? Does it even matter? The uh, the county takes the position that it's ju- what, what you're dealing with here is direct expenses. These are direct expenses. They're related to transportation. We gave you a rational basis for how this was done, and it's okay. There was also, there's also an issue regarding striking the affidavit of the expert. So what happened here procedurally below was the complaint gets answered and the, and the appellees, or appellants rather, move immediately for summary judgment. No discovery, they just move for summary judgment. Uh, and then the, the county cross moved and supported it with their affidavit from this uh, auditor, 
for lack of a better term, I don't know, auditor is quite right, quite the right word, but a person that and his company that is an accounting firm, I, I take it, that dug into or consulting firm of some variety that's got some sophistication in in, in uh, uh, municipal um, government and municipal uh, finance, dug into the county's uh, finances, talked to people, as I said, and then figured out these percentages and then provided an affidavit to find what he was doing. And they moved, the appellants did, to strike portions of the affidavit as they claimed he was making certain legal conclusions. And again, the justices struggled with that because they're like, he's got to define what he's doing. He's got to try to say how they were complying with the, 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 the statute and the Supreme Court's order that they were to comply. Um, and he says that, and he claims that they were doing all of that. Um, I, I, I don't know why the plaintiffs took the, the procedural tact that they did and moved for summary judgment without really taking any discovery first. It seems they didn't, obviously they didn't think they needed it. Um, but that may come back to bite them, uh, here. They, they did take his deposition. It seems, did I get that right? Did they take his deposition? Yeah, they took his deposition, um, but there that was about it um, in terms of additional discovery because what they got in the budget was a list of things that is articulated in the oral argument, as I said, laundry uh, at the jail somehow being related to roads, bridges, airports, and so forth. Um, it, it's kind of, it's re- not kind of, it's really cynical by the county to allocate it this way in my judgment. Uh, to, to, to do this, and at least the um, circuit court held that this could be done. We will see what the appellate court has to say. I imagine that the um, they may be a bit chastened by what the Supreme Court did on the original uh, on on the uh, first appeal, but th- this is no way that this is over. There's they're, they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court if they you know whoever loses is going to appeal to the Supreme Court, um, and. We'll see what uh, what what comes of it. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? No, I think it's a very interesting case, Pat. And I think you, you you summarized very well. A lot of issues going on here. You know, one of the things that we've talked about uh, with our Constitution and and uh, we've uh, some some of the cases, including I think this one when it was on originally on its way up, uh, uh, had to do with the three readings rule and the specific purpose and all the other things that we. Uh, have talked about in this show that the legislative body uh, for many decades has ignored, uh, whether it's controlled by Republicans and when it was in the 80s or it's controlled by Dems. They, 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 uh, we, we've talked about the sausage-making process down in Springfield and uh, some, some of the things that they either ignore and at least in a couple of cases in the last uh, term for the Illinois Supreme Court, they haven't really hit head on. They've kind of avoided these issues of the constitutional uh, issues. Uh, but this is an important case, and I, I think you uh, hit it on the head. I think the county is a bit uh, being, a, being a, a, a bit cute by half by the way that they're allocating funds and uh, calling everything a program. And like you said, you could come up with examples of things that are directly related to highways and, and uh, the purpose, but, you know, <laughs> it's just just kind of come up with stuff, you know, the way they did it. And like you said, this this case, we're going to see this before the Illinois Supreme Court again, and then it's going to go back and back up again because 
There's a lot they're of they're going to do. This could be like a yearly ritual. Um, right. it, 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 it may it may turn in it may turn into a yearly ritual with these two parties up and back. You know, <laughs> depending upon how how the Supreme Court deals with this deals with it this next time. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's crazy. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Mitchell versus Michaels. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment two of episode 178 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. And does the discovery rule apply to Illinois dram shop actions? Should it matter that some of the takers of the decedent's estate are minors? Those are the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Mitchell versus Michaels. The circuit court summarized the issues thusly. Robert Cantu struck Sandra Mitchell, a pedestrian, and caused her death because he was driving while intoxicated. The accident occurred on May 20th of 2018. Thomas Mitchell learned within a week of his wife's death that Cantu had been arrested and charged with DUI reckless homicide or no later than May 7th, 2018. Pursuant to the one-year statute of limitations and dram shop actions, Mitchell had no later than May 28th, 2019 to file a dram shop claim. Mitchell filed suit on May 22nd, 2020, approximately 17 months after the statute of limitations ran. The Dram Shop Act provides in pertinent part. Each action hereunder shall be barred unless commenced within one year next after the cause of action accrued. Accrued is a very important word. That is 235-ILCS-5-6-21A. Dan, tell us about this uh, this case. Pat, thanks. And uh, yeah, the uh, you you. In, in the closing of the introduction, you mentioned uh, the, the the language of the Dram Shop Act, and it says when accrued. And so a lot of the oral arguments by the appellants in this case especially had to do with what exactly when accrued means. Because in this case, a couple of, of, of odd facts, and again, we don't know the full circumstances, but the wrongful death action had been uh, dismissed uh, in, in the case with prejudice. The, there were two children here. There was no independent or derivative action filed on behalf of the minors. And what the appellant was arguing here is that uh, the Dram Shop Act, when it was created back in the 1920s, I believe it was. Well, it was uh, the 30s 30. after pro- the end of Prohibition. Yeah. End of Prohibition and concerns about um, uh, drunkenness and, and, and bars, you know, serving um and, and, and like any statute of limitation or statute, statute of repose, uh, the, the public policy and purpose was to uh, make people go out and do some kind of investigation. Uh, the, uh, it was very interesting discussion be, between uh, the, the uh, judges, justices in this panel and uh, the appellant. Uh, the appellant's argument that I think carries some weight is that, you know, the a plaintiff's not obligated to become a detective or start looking at things. But the rejoinder from the justices and from the appellee was, but yeah, but, uh, you know, 
you know that this was an intoxicated accident, and so that gives you notice. And and for listeners that might be not familiar, and the cause of action with the discovery accrues. Rule. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Right. Starting then. Right. Yeah. When you're yeah. on inquiry notes, and, 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 he knew his. He knew right. that the 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 they knew he had an injury, and he knew it had been wrongfully caused. It's now your job to figure yep. out who. Yep. And, and, and again, there's the wrongful conduct, and again, here uh, was close to a bar, uh, but but uh, the discovery rule, it, it has nothing to do with discovery, so I think sometimes people hear discovery rule and think maybe that it's got something to do with, you know, discovery, like we talked about uh, in the first case, there wasn't much discovery before motions for summary judgment were filed. It's, it's the discovery of the wrongful conduct, and then it puts you on notice, and then you have certain periods of time. The, um, the Dram Shop Act, even though it's been around since the 1930s, uh, there's been no specific uh, cases uh, on point. There was was an old case, Dermcheck, I think is the name, or is, is, do I have the right, Pat? Uh, I think so. They, they kept referring to. Um, but 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 the the uh, appellant, what they used in in, in significant amounts here uh, was the MedMel. Uh, acts and statutes that have very specific language, uh, but those are much more elaborate. And again, that's uh, designed to, uh, like any professional liability, designed to cut off the period of exposure for medical providers. Um, and again, this language, it talks about when the action accrued and uh, what, what this panel will have to decide I, I think they were a bit skeptical about uh, some of the arguments by appellant, uh, but they're going to have to decide uh, when uh, this action accrued. Did it accrue immediately after it occurred, and and the guy was uh, 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 person was killed in, in the in the auto accident, um, and, and and whether or not, uh, uh, like you said, it was done. They they filed a case about 17 months. Um, you know, there's a question here, and again. One of the uh, things that's the challenge here, I think, is that, again, the minors are not parties to this, but as, as anybody who's been involved in personal injuries or wrongful death actions or anything else, uh, minors until they're 18 don't have, uh, don't have uh, the statutes are told generally, and so their, their action doesn't accrue until they turn 18 uh, for various reasons, right? We don't want to have minors that can't be represented or their best interests aren't uh, looked out for. Uh, but in this case, like I said, they, they weren't party to the to the actual action. And so the appellant, when asked about this by, by the panel, um, gave responses that uh, even, even, even in that case, we, we don't have any evidence of how old the kids were. Uh, but in this case, uh, the uh, father... Uh, the, the estate did not file uh, in time. You know, they, they filed well beyond the 12 months, and so uh, it, it may be maybe may uh, 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 fatal. Um, the the, the <laughs> one of the interesting lines in this thing, Pat, was uh, at, at times the the the, the uh, uh, one of the justices kept referring to being overserved at bar association functions. So I don't know if it's because it's the holiday season and most bar associations start having their their various gatherings. But um, 
there was there was some laughter at that point when they talked about the fact that this was in fact that a <laughs> could have been overserved at a, at a bar association function. The uh, response of the uh, uh, appellant at, at one point, um, the, one of the justices asked uh, noted, uh, whether there was a notice to discover uh, where the vehicle uh, accident happened here. Um, and the, the response from the appellant lawyer was that lay people are not responsible for that, that it's too much from to expect from the widower, uh, that you're asking too much from a widower to have to do this investigation while they're mourning. And I think the response from, again, the, the appellee and some of the justices was, well, maybe, maybe the plaintiff themselves, himself or herself doesn't have to have that kind of investigatory knowledge. Uh, but in these cases, typically, uh, one of the first things after the grieving is done and you bury somebody is to go retain a lawyer. And that lawyer, by as we've talked about almost every show on, on her pat, uh, we as lawyers have obligations to understand statute of limitations and discovery rules and investigatory tools and whether you have a case or not and notice to insurers and all the stuff that goes with this stuff. And so... Uh, uh, that's a real question here as well, um, and I agree. I agree with the appellant advocate that, you know, of course, the, the widower is not responsible to uh, know this stuff and to start investigating and you know go to the scene of the crime and then within a, a radius start looking at bars and taverns that may have served uh, the, the uh, driver that caused the accident. But uh, an interesting case, I think, and we'll see. Uh, like I said, the panel seemed especially hard on the appellant in this case, uh, but uh, we'll see what happens. And, and, and it was Judge Walker that was presiding. At first, I thought it was uh, uh, Justice Reyes, but it, but it turned out it was Justice Walker, I think, right? That was uh, presiding. Justice Reyes was on the panel. He was, and, and he asked quite a few questions. He so, did. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things I want to add, because the, the lawyer for the appellee also has a beef with the circuit court's opinion. Uh, Robert Burke is the lawyer for the appellee. He does a lot of this work. He's an excellent lawyer. I've had cases with him on these kinds of cases. And what the court did is the court said, it, the circuit court gave seven days of credit on the discovery rule and said that didn't accrue until, until the prosecutors told the plaintiff that the, uh, the, about the DUI. And so now it didn't make a difference, which is why he didn't cross appeal. But he's like, That's, that was wrong. It says, you know, the law is clear that a traffic accident, you know, from the moment the accident occurred, you've suffered an injury and it was wrongfully caused. Now it's your right. job to figure out who you go sue. Um, and so one of the issues that was raised is, well, how do you figure out, was he drinking at home? Was he drinking at a dram? Was he drinking at a friend's house? How do you do that? Because he's going to exercise his Fifth Amendment right. And right. knowing that he's handled, and this is obviously outside the record, Robert says, I can tell you how this works. The guy will, you can get that information. He right, will, and the criminal, the lawyer, right. The, and the, 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 in the criminal proceeding, you can get that information. And it's part, and it's, you can see how it might work out. He didn't describe it this way, but I can, I can gather how this might, might happen. Is then that goes in the column for credit uh, when it comes to sentencing time, that he helped out the plaintiff's family get recovery, you know, then the, the the quid pro quo is you're going to help me when it comes to sentencing 
that I helped you in finding out where I was drinking before I struck your loved one. Now that seemed kind of crass, but that's how business is done. Um, and I, and I am, I am quite certain that that is the kind of arrangement that would be reached, um, in a situation like this in order to get the information. Um, but you've got to go inquire and the lawyer who represented the plaintiffs, it was clear he did not have the case at the time that the, um, you know, during the first year, he didn't get the case until later. So he's trying to turn, uh, uh, he's trying to, uh, turn a silk purse from a, from a sow's ear. So he's, he's got a, he's got a bit of a problem. Um, but he really relied on this word accrue because many times in the the statutes, it says from the date of the accident or the date of the law, this kind of a thing, this uses the word accrue. And he says it brings all that old soil with it as to what it means for a claim to accrue. I, I, I really don't buy this argument that the children weren't parties. Well, they never were parties. They're takers. Right. Um, right. They could have brought their own claims where they majors, but they're minors. And the time has run because this the, you know, the general principle is the more narrow controls over the general. And in this case, the narrow is this that deals with one year. It right. says each action here under shall be barred. So this action deals with wrongful death acts, survival act claims, yada, yada. Okay, we're trumping everything else. It's one year. Um, and so when did the claim accrue? It, it, I don't see any other conclusion, despite the harsh result. Um, yeah. the, 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 the problem here is that he needed to have gotten a lawyer. And if the lawyer couldn't have figured it out, then he might have had a legal malpractice action. But right. he didn't seem he got a lawyer. He didn't seem that he got did what he needed to do to investigate it and figure out where this guy was was drinking, um, whether it was at home or, or, as it turned out, at a dram. Uh, and, and so it would be a substantial change in the law if the court were to reverse the circuit court's opinion. And I think the circuit court opinion does need to get reversed in one regard to make it clear that this, that there is no tolling. Uh, right. But the, and the, the appellant or the appellee made that point, but... As I said, couldn't cross appeal because he because he won. You you can't cross appeal when you win, <laughs> even right. if the circuit court's so, reasoning is wrong. And so the appellate court might not consider it just because it's not rightfully before them. It kind of is, but it kind of it kind of hard so, to put it in front of. Yeah. I know. It's, it we'll is. see. So with that, we'll we'll take our next break and come back with segment three: Taylor versus City of Chicago. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 178 of the Podium and Panel podcast. It was a jury's verdict that the city of Chicago violated the Illinois Domestic Violence Act 750 LCS 60-101 at SEC against the manifest weight of the evidence in a situation in which Chicago police officers did not take the plaintiff's decedent's boyfriend into custody, but rather took him to Stroger Hospital for a mental health evaluation 
expecting him to be put on a 72-hour hold, and when that did not occur, he was released and killed his girlfriend? That is a question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Taylor versus City of Chicago. The IDBA requires under 750 LCS 60-30 that law enforcement officers who have reason to believe that someone is the victim of domestic violence are required to take certain steps. The officers were called by the deceased as her boyfriend was threatening her and her son with a knife. The officer treated it as a mental health call, not a domestic violence call, based on the statements that the perpetrator did not have a history of mental illness and that he was having a mental health crisis. The jury found that the officers acted willfully and wantonly in violation of the law and awarded $3 million. On appeal, the city argues certain evidentiary errors by the trial court, as well as that the officer's conduct was reasonable under the law and not willful and wanton. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. So there's a real tension here. Um, I, I think certainly since uh, 2020 um, and and the death of uh, George Floyd, that you know the, how officers are to handle situations has you know been, really been inspected and been interrogated uh, across the country and 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 across the political spectrum. And here we have a situation where the officers are sent into this. It was plainly a domestic. They were they were in a relationship, and they had known each other for high, since high school. And he had never beat on her. And one of the evidentiary issues is whether she had a bruise or not. Um, and what there was testimony about this bruise, and if that testimony, I don't understand quite what the issue was with the issue with the bruise. But there's issue about whether someone can testify to this bruise. But he had a knife, and apparently he was threatening them. But it was also apparent that he was having a mental health problem. And this was out of the blue. It was unexpected. It was un was out of character from what we gathered. And so the police are like, well, if we take him to jail, is that really going to solve the problem? Uh, it sounds like what he needs is a doctor, not a jailer. We're going to take him to Stroger and they'll deal with it. Uh, the problem was, is that he did not get held on the 72 hour hold. They did not. I don't know what treatment they gave him. Oftentimes in situations like this, they'll start by giving him what's called a B-52, which is uh, uh, benzodiazepine, Ativan, and Benadryl to calm them down. Um, and that oftentimes works just to get them in the short term calm down, uh, thus the name. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, it really, you know, if you think about that combination or any one of those drugs, what they do to you, uh, they, will, they, they, they will put you to sleep. Uh, and someone who's extremely agitated... It at least calms them down. It may not put them to sleep, depending upon their level of agitation. Uh, and they, in this case, he did not get put on a 72-hour hold. And so he gets released and, like, the next day kills this poor woman. Uh, so her brother, I think, brings the, brings the action. And in order for the police to be liable, they have to be willful and one. And the argument of the appellee is, well, here's the things you're supposed to do. You didn't do any of them. And as a consequence, that's by definition a willful and wanton misconduct. And the argument of the city is like, well, no, this isn't a domestic violence. This You want to treat this as a criminal matter. This wasn't a criminal matter. This was a civil matter. It was a mental health problem. Uh, he, 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 yes, he was threatening her. Yes, they lived together. Sure. But he was doing it because he needed a, a doctor, not a jailer. Uh, and if we just arrest... So it puts cops in a horrible situation trying to deal with this 
um, circumstance. And and one of the points that was made during the oral argument was that oral, that uh, domestic violence calls are the most dangerous calls for police. Uh, and this is the reason why they're they're volatile in every direction. Now, in this particular case, it doesn't seem that the 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 wife, the mother or the, the mother, the, the woman or her child were a danger. Sometimes that can be you have danger coming from both sides. That's the, this case. The violence was only coming from one side, it seems. Um, but they were able to control this person, but and get them to to the hospital. You know, I I don't know if there's an action to be brought against the hospital uh, for not having um, treated this person properly. I can certainly see an action for that. We've talked about cases similar to this uh, in Indiana, where there was the case where they sued because the the young man didn't get properly treated and killed his grandfather. And they tried to bring a medical malpractice action based on that. Um, I can see a, a claim of that kind perhaps. Um, but I, I really struggle with how this is willful and one. Now let's just say the panel didn't seem to be buying it. Uh, the city's going to be paying this judgment if it's up to this panel of the, of the appellate court. Uh, yeah. But the, I, I, I don't know what cops are supposed to do. What, what policy are they, are they supposed to take them all to jail and then they get themselves in a whipsaw where now they're, they're criticized for doing that um, when, the, the, when the, the person needed a doctor and they got them a doctor and the doctor made a medical judgment as to what was proper and apparently that judgment was let him out and uh, not, not hold him. Now, even if they had held him, there's no guarantee that on hour 73 he wouldn't have run back home and killed the poor woman. Um, so... And, and so, and also, I don't understand the causation because even if they had done all the things, all these eight, seven or eight things that they're supposed to do, there's no guarantee that that would have protected her um, under these circumstances. Uh, you know, she, it got one of the arguments of the appellee is, well, hold it. You guys documented it as a domestic violence call. That's how it came in. But perhaps when they got there, they, they took their judgment and realized it wasn't. Does that make it willful and wanton misconduct? Does that show a reckless disregard for human life and safety? I I really struggle with that. Um, It may be that their judgment was wrong, but simply because it's wrong doesn't make it willful and want. And that's the standard. I I, I really struggle with this particular case. Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. And as as we've talked about in this case, on this show, often with qualified immunity and our view that it's strict immunity, you know, many of the cases, you know, we find that the, the behavior is egregious. Um, but in this case, I agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I've uh, Cops can't be helped. art prescient. Their, their, well, their magic eight ball doesn't work. And sometimes and, and, they get it wrong. And, well, and also, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned the show before. I helped uh, get get organized a group called PTAC, which is uh, police, I forget what the the acronym stands for right now, but it's a deflective or, or, uh, type of approach uh, to not arresting all the time and more mental health workers and more of this treatment. And it's a real movement. And, and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the argument, uh, as we've also probably talked about in this show and the uh, defund the police was, was a bad uh, ascription to what I think in a lot of cases was meant because a lot of it was meant to be kind of this kind of mental health, not every not every situation requires a, a, a hammer, right? It's it's it was the some do, of, you, you, some do, but you triage it. And in this right. case, no no signs of violence. 
uh, you know, something triggered this guy, a case of psychosis or whatever, and, and you take him to the hospital and, you know, um, he was supposed to get certain treatment, like you said, a cocktail of, of that would put him down and these things happen, but you know, it is, it's, a. Um, I, I think in this case, I, I, I just don't see that it rises to willful wanton. I, I think, uh, I, I think that that would be a, a bad policy. And again, you know, police have a hard job and, you know, to, to have these types of decisions that make it, you know, like you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, you know, if if they had taken him to prison and, and something happened or, you know, then they would have a wrongful imprisonment case or they would have, right. you know, that he was, he was, you know, something happened to him in the, in the lockup or whatever. Right. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't see it in this case, but, uh, we'll see what this panel does. You know, Dan, as we've talked about these, I think all three of these cases are headed to the Illinois Supreme court. I think so. I, I, th- I think all three of these cases have got excellent bases for the Supreme court to consider them. They raise substantial policy issues, all the different yep. variety. Uh, the, the, this the, I, that doesn't happen very often, but I think these three cases have got an excellent chance, as good a chance as any case could have, uh, where there's no circuits, where there's no district split. Um, uh, that's appellate district split. Um, I, I, I really I, I think agree. they've got they, these are really important policy questions that the, the the state would benefit from having the Supreme Court consider um, uh, these issues. Um, I, I agree. So with that brings us to BI for COVID. Nothing, nothing doing. Um, nope. We'll go to our prediction. Sure to go wrong. Uh, we were one and zero this week. Dan is two hundred seventy-two and a half, fifty-eight and a half, and nineteen. I am two hundred sixty-nine and a half, sixty-one and a half, and nineteen. The case we got right was Mathis versus Yildiz. Um, and Dan, why don't you tell us uh, about this case? Yeah, this was the dentist that uh, allegedly drilled a hole into a, a tooth to make it damaged enough to qualify for insurance coverage. Uh, you know, I, I hope that I never go to a dentist like that. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But uh, in any event, um, yeah, what, what what happened here, uh, and this was episode 176 that we talked about it, uh, the plaintiff had, uh, uh, her claims were dismissed under the Illinois Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Business Practice Act. Uh, and and uh, she had sued both her dentist and the dental practice at Destiny Dental. Uh, the, um, the circuit court had dismissed her claims because the Consumer Fraud Act doesn't allow causes of action arising from the provision of dental services. Again, as, as we talked about when we covered this show the, uh, two shows ago, uh, for malpractice claims against uh, dentists or doctors or lawyers for that matter, uh, those are under uh, legal, uh, under malpractice acts and not under a consumer fraud, right? We can't have, um, we, we can't have people filing under the consumer fraud acts. Um, and again, uh, the... Um, uh, the, the, there were allegations that were, were made um, that, that had to do with uh, creating evidence to defraud her insurer, which, which would be, um, uh, and again, uh, these are allegations of dental malpractice, uh, performing an unnecessary and harmful dental procedure. And so the, the 
appellate court affirmed in part, reversed in part, and remanded the matter for further proceedings to sort up some of these things out. Yeah, it's it's a um, they're going to have to replead. They didn't plead the specific allegations of. Uh, they didn't separate the allegations of medical or dental malpractice from the allegations of consumer fraud. Uh, they're going to get a chance to do that. We'll see uh, if they can do it. Um, with that, that brings us to our prediction should it go wrong this week. Uh, Illinois Road and Transportation versus County Cook. I, I think this gets reversed. I, I think I agree with that. I think this gets reversed. Uh, Mitchell versus Michaels. I think this gets affirmed. Affirmed. Yep. And I think uh, Taylor versus City of Chicago. I think that gets affirmed. I think so too. All right. That brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. This is one we you dug up uh, from Corey Webster. Tell us about the rule of the week. Sure. And uh, Corey, uh, a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago now, talked again about Ninth Circuit and unpublished decisions. Um, they have a, a rule that after 2006, they're technically, you can cite them, but they're not precedential. Uh, he said, said, what's the best way to use memorandum dispositions? And he said, take a cue from today's dissenting opinion by Judge Kraber. A claimant seeking disability benefits must meet several requirements. An administrative law judge rejected a claim, concluding that the claimant didn't show a severe impairment. And setting aside the ALJ's decision and the Ninth Circuit majority opinion, emphasizes the rarity of a claimant failing to meet the slight burden of showing a severe impairment. And he said, Judge Graber doesn't dispute that the claimant's burden is slight, but she concludes that, quote, this case is the unusual one in which the claimant fails to meet even that low bar, end quote. In a footnote, Judge Graber then cites several recent memorandum dispositions as examples to show that it isn't all that rare for the Ninth Circuit to affirm after an ALJ finds a lack of a severe impairment. Uh, he said, notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't cite the memos of disposition for what the controlling legal standard is. She doesn't an analogize to the facts in the mem uh, memorandum dispositions. She uses memorandum dispositions for broad outcomes and uh, puts them in a footnote. So again, interesting thing. I think, you know, Illinois, as we've talked about, uh, Rule 23, is it 23, right? 23. Rule 23, um, yeah. Yep. Uh, um, has had some revisions, but uh, Seventh Circuit really doesn't, I, to, to my knowledge, I don't recall them very much using unsighted opinions from Illinois Appellate or the Supreme Court, which doesn't really have. No, there are no unpublished published. opinions from the Supreme yeah. Court. Those are all but, published. Uh, but I don't know the Seventh Circuit cites to, to, to many unpublished. Uh, no, many they typically don't. Yeah. They typically don't. They don't. Yeah. So with that, we will take we will take our leave. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next week on the Podium Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host Pat Eckler. We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel.
each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.